is uh, your first time or one of your few, uh, first few times here checking out our church. Uh, we're very glad that you are here. Have you ever wondered what the point of church is? Whether it's our specific church here at Hiawatha Church or whether it's the global church, churches have done and they continue to do really great things, but ultimately, what is their main mission? Maybe you're brand new to Hiawatha Church or just the church in general, and maybe you have no idea what church is really all about. And that's fine, and that's great, and we love to have people here gathering with us who are unfamiliar with church, unfamiliar with the Bible, with Jesus, and most weeks, we have many of those people within uh, our gatherings on a Sunday morning. So if this is you, uh, someone who has questions about the church, or about Jesus, or about what, what we're about here at Hiawatha, know that this is a safe place for you, and it's a safe place to come with your big questions. And in fact, this summer, what we're doing is uh, we're going through a sermon series called Big Questions. And so we've asked our church to, to share with us big questions that they're wrestling with, whether it's questions about Jesus or the Bible, questions that deal with uh, faith, church, or anything theological that they might be wondering or, or wrestling with. We've got a great response from you, so thank you for that. We have almost four months' worth of sermons that we're going to be doing. And we want our people and our visitors to know that you don't have to check your brain or logic at the door when you come to church. But rather, authentic and real questions are not only welcomed, but they're wanted and even needed. So this week, we're going to begin to answer one of the big questions that we received that maybe many of you are wondering, either for the first time or maybe you've wondered this throughout your life. What is the mission of the church? So this word mission, essentially we're asking, what, what's the point? What's the ultimate goal? Why does it exist? Organizations and companies, they have mission statements essentially explaining to people, this is what we do. This is what we're about. This is why we exist. So what's the mission of the church? Why does she exist? What did Jesus create his church for? We're going to answer this question right away. Kevin DeYoung in his book entitled, What is the Mission of the Church? Uh, we can, uh, making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. He writes, uh, the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they may worship and obey Jesus Christ now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. That is the mission of the church. We could pray right now and be done. Some of you may be wishing that would be the case. We're going to unpack this a little bit more. So if Jesus is the creator of the church, we're going to look at a few places in Scripture where this kind of comes out, where Jesus says, I am going to build my church, and this is what they're going to be about. This is going to be their main mission. And then later we're going to see how, how does that affect us? What should Christians do then because of that, as, as a part of a church? So the church is given a number of different names throughout the New Testament, including uh, the Bride of Christ and the Body of Christ. And the New Testament also describes Jesus as the builder of the church. So since it's created by Jesus, it's called his bride, and the church is the physical representation of him here on earth, we're going to look at him to what he says about his church. Not what we think, not what other people have thought throughout history, but what does Jesus say about his church? We're going to start with Matthew 
16. So this is uh, kind of set up where we're at. So Jesus has been uh, doing his ministry publicly now. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been doing miracles. And he's even been raising people from the dead. And he goes and he asks one of his leaders, his, his main leader among his disciples, uh, Peter. And he asks him, what, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? I've been doing all these miraculous things, preaching and, and teaching. Who, uh, what, how are people responding to this? Who are they saying that I am? And this disciple, Peter, responds by saying, essentially, people think that you're a prophet, either one of old or a brand new one. And then Jesus says, but Peter, who do you say that I am? You're, you've been with me for, for months, maybe even years now. Who do you say that I am? Do you think that I'm just a prophet? And Peter responds by saying, you are, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. We pick it up in uh, Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, so this is Jesus responding now back to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So Jesus responds on that truth that Peter has just said, on that truth that Jesus is the coming Messiah, the rescuer, the king that will come and save his people and defeat his people's enemies. On that truth, Jesus is going to build his church. Not Peter, not us. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who's going to build his church. And we can't forget this. This is Jesus' church. He is the one that he is built. He is the one that is building it. It is his body, and Jesus and only Jesus get to define its mission. So Jesus is building his church on, with the foundation of essentially of the gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came to earth to save sinners. And Jesus goes on now to describe what his church will be doing. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So Jesus gives this incredible picture of what the church's mission will be. Think about gates. What, what are gates used for? Especially think about ancient cities that were walled to protect from, from people attacking it. And you have a gate that let people in and out. So gates are defensive, right? They're not offensive. They're defensive. So Jesus, he's not saying here that the church is just going to hunker down, that they're going to weather the storm, and they're going to shield itself from the attacks from Satan. But rather, the picture Jesus gives is one of the church going on the offensive, storming the gates of hell and rescuing the prisoners out of it. Prisoners who are enslaved to sin and to death. This phrase, gates of hell, could also be translated gates of Hades. Hades, the place of death. So Jesus, our great king, is going to defeat our enemies of sin and death at the cross, and he's going to be sending his church on a mission to rescue those who are hopelessly captive to Satan's sin and death. And we're going to fast forward the story a little bit now. So this is before the cross. Now we're going to look at a passage that comes after the cross. So Jesus has, has died on the cross for the, for the sins of the world. He's now been raised from the grave, and now he's interacting with his disciples. So for the past few weeks, he's been proving to everyone that he is who he said he was and that he did what he said he was going to do, namely raise from the grave after three days. So we're going to pick up the story in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So right now in, right now in the story, Jesus has just defeated sin and death on our behalf. And the last thing that he does before he leaves his disciples and goes back to heaven to be with uh, the Father and the Holy Spirit, he tells his disciples one thing. And often when someone leaves, the last thing that they say is often pretty important, right? And the last thing Jesus says to his disciples, to the church, before he leaves them, is he tells them, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This word go, it can be translated go like, like a command, telling his disciples you're going to go to the ends of the earth, spreading this gospel and making disciples. And it can also be translated as you go. So as you go into the world throughout your life, make disciples. And we see both of these things happen. We see some that, that are called to go, to go to the ends of the world, ends of the world, to go overseas. And we see that happening at Hiawatha Church. We've sent global missionaries to different parts of the world to spread the gospel. We also see that some are called to stay. And as they go through their cities, through their workplaces, through their schools, through their neighborhoods, through their countries, that they are also to make disciples. So we see both some that are called to go and some that are called as they go throughout their life, they are to make disciples. But note that all are called to make disciples, not just the global missionaries, not just the church planters, not just the Apostle Paul, but all are called to make disciples. And that's the same for us today, Hiawatha Church. Everyone here, if you are a believer, you are a missionary, a missionary sent by God with the gospel. Jesus unpacks here in the Great Commission uh, what exactly it means to make disciples. There's, there's a lot more to say than just this. But Jesus does kind of help summarize for us two things. He, he says, first, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we see conversion here. We see part of making a disciple is someone converting, someone hearing the gospel and responding to that, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then baptism corresponds with that. Baptism is an, is an outward sign of an inward change that's happened on the inside. So part of making disciples is converts, sharing the gospel and people responding to that, crossing a line in the sand and saying, Jesus is who he said he was and I will trust him, put my faith in him as my Lord and my Savior. But it's not just that. It's not only preach the gospel, people say a prayer and then you're done with them and you never see them again. But making disciples is also teaching them to follow what he commanded, which is essentially to help people grow in their Christ-likeness, to mature in their faith, to become more and more like Jesus. Notice here what Jesus does. Right after giving them their mission, this, this, the greatest and maybe most difficult task ever charged to, to humankind in the history of the world, he doesn't just say, well, good luck, guys. He doesn't just say, okay, now go make disciples of the whole world and don't screw this up. He doesn't say the, inter the eternal fate of the whole world depends on you so you better not be the disciples of just a few weeks earlier that when I was getting arrested, you deserted me and you betrayed me and you denied me. He doesn't do that, but instead, Jesus tells them the way that they're going to be able to change the world, the way that they're going to be able to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's only through what Jesus has just done, 
when he says, authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And it's because that Jesus is with us. He says, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now remember these guys. These guys are not heroes. But after Christ's resurrection, he's now empowering these people who were formerly cowards and ran away. He's empowering them to change the world through what he has just accomplished on the cross and is now sending them out to do. Disciples are made and the church explodes and the gospel has been spreading and growing for the past 2,000 years. All right, finally, we're going to look at one, one more passage, uh, another post-resurrection passage in the gospel of John, where Jesus again describes to his church their mission. And again, we see Jesus uh, telling them what they're going to do and how they're going to do it right before he leaves to return to heaven. John 20, 21 through 22. Jesus said to them again, to the disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Acclaimed author and brilliant theologian uh, Christopher Walker preached on this passage <laughs> a few years ago for Easter, unpacking all that's going on. Lots of really important stuff's going on here. So if you want to know more about what Jesus is doing here, what he's saying, more than we can get to this morning, I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon online. But here in, here in John 20, Jesus unpacks both what he's calling his church to do and how they're going to do it. He says, just as the Father has sent me into the world, I am now sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Think through that. How is Jesus sent into the world? In that same way, Jesus is now sending his disciples into the world. He's sending his church. He's giving his church a mission. For those of you who like charts, I kind of made a chart here. Uh, so we see on the left, Jesus, the ultimate missionary. Okay, so we're going to look at how, how was Jesus sent by the Father into the world, and then us, his disciples, uh, being sent by Jesus in, in a similar way. So Jesus was sent by God the Father into the world, and now Jesus sends us. Jesus left the comforts of his home. He left the throne. He left heaven in order to come, those, come to those he was trying to reach and save, just like we're called as Christians. The church is called to give up their comforts in order to reach the lost. Jesus condescended himself, and he humbled himself. He took the very form of a human. He went from being God to be, uh, taking the form of a human. And us, in a similar manner, are called by Jesus to think of others and their needs as more important than our own. Jesus came as a servant in Mark 10. And Jesus sends us, his church, to serve just as Christ has served us. Jesus became like those he was trying to reach as the ultimate missionary. He spoke like those he was trying to reach. He looked like those he was trying to reach. He entered into their culture. He ate their food. And just like that, us, the church, his disciples, we're also called to become similar to those that we're trying to reach. 1 Corinthians 9, we're, we're called to become all things to all people in order that we may win some for Christ. And finally, Jesus entered in the world and the culture of those he wanted to save. He didn't just come as, as a big flame. He didn't just write it in the sky. But he entered into our world, into our sin, into our brokenness, into our culture, because he wanted to save us. 
And just like that, Jesus sends his church not to run and hide from the world, but rather to go into the world, into the culture, as missionaries just like him. Then finally in John 20, Jesus ends by telling his disciples, his church, how they're going to do this, how they will accomplish his mission, how these terrified, weak, uneducated people are now going to storm the gates of hell. Right now we should be thinking, and I'm sure that they were, this is crazy, right? Just, just before this, this part in the story, these people just showed how terrified and weak and, and ill-equipped they really were. But Jesus says, these same people and now us in extension are going to accomplish the mission of the church, Christ's mission, not on our own strength, but rather through the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus throughout his whole ministry to meet his mission. Verse 22 said, And when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives them the Holy Spirit to empower and equip them to live out this mission he's given them, just as he relied on the Holy Spirit to accomplish his own mission. Author and pastor Jeff Vanderstoke comments on this. He says, writing to Christians, writing to the church, everywhere you go, whatever you do, you are a missionary sent by Jesus to love like Jesus, to overcome sin like Jesus, to proclaim the gospel like Jesus, and to see people's lives changed by the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. All right, so that's the mission of the church. Now, secondary question that you might be asking that we also got, how, how does an individual Christian, or how do we as Christians then help our church or help the global church reach its mission? Where do we fit in there? Or you might be asking, if the church's mission is to make disciples by preaching the gospel, then how do we as individual Christians, or as families, or as, as smaller groups, how do we participate in that? Or specifically, another one of the big questions we received from one of you reads, how do we share the gospel in a moment, in a year, in a lifetime? We're going to unpack that question in just a second, but first, what, what do we mean by share the gospel? So that phrase, you might hear it a lot, but what do we mean by share the gospel? Essentially, essentially we mean evangelize. We mean share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came to do. The good news that Jesus came to earth. He died in our place for our sins so that we might be brought back to God. We might be reconciled to him. We might have our sins forgiven. We might have life to the fullest, both now and throughout eternity. It means sharing that, that good news, the gospel. Hiawatha Church's vision as a church is to glorify God, and we think the main way he's glorified is by spreading that gospel. And we do it in two ways. We spread the gospel through word and we also spread it through deed. Both are important. So when we share the gospel, both words and deeds are important. The deeds point to those words. The deeds validate these words. So if someone is preaching the gospel, but they're just a real jerk, and they hate people, and they're really stingy, and they're always grouchy, the people hearing this gospel are going to say, well, that can't be true because it obviously hasn't changed this person. So deeds both validate, well, first of all, they, they validate this gospel that we are preaching. So when someone preaches the gospel, shares their faith, and then they show great uh, hospitality or great generosity or great kindness, it shows off in picture 
and validates what that person is saying. They're not just a hypocrite. Secondly, it also shows off those same words that they're preaching, that they're teaching, that they're sharing in picture. They embody the gospel, as you maybe hear, often hear at Hiawatha. And Jesus did this all the time, right? Jesus made bread, and then he told people, hey, there's even more important things, spiritual bread. I am the bread of life, and that's what you really need. You're going to get hungry later, but if, if you uh, eat of my bread, if you partake of, of my salvation, you will never hunger again. Or he'll heal someone and then go on to say, but what you really need is spiritual healing. Or he'll even raise someone from the dead and then through that miracle teach people and say, there's something even greater. There's a spiritual resurrection. That person got hungry again. That other person, they got sick again and died. That person who was raised from the dead, they didn't stay alive forever. They died again. But there's something even more important than that. So those deeds, those miracles are, are pointing ahead to the gospel, something even more true. So words are even more important than deeds. Both are very important. Both are very needed. But words ultimately are more important in sharing the gospel than, than deeds. You maybe have heard this common quote, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Commonly uh, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, one of the church fathers. And obviously there's, there's some, some truth in it. I understand what, what many people mean when they say it. They're saying our whole lives should be preaching the gospel and we should use words when necessary. But actually, well, first of all, uh, there's, there's no historical evidence that St. Francis of Assisi actually said that. He, he was a preacher and he actually preached like five times a day, so it doesn't make sense that he would say that. And we just don't have any uh, historical record that, that he did say that. But secondly, th there can be this big danger for us as Christians that, that just read that phrase and, and think, hey, that, that, that really sounds good. That's what I'm about. But there can be a danger of focusing more on deeds than words, or focusing on deeds so much to the exclusion of words. Both are important. Uh, Romans 10 shares, Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So no one enters the kingdom of God because someone served them really well or because someone was really generous financially to them, or someone was very kind or very welcoming. It sure can embody the gospel. It sure can show it off. It can sure validate these words that they are preaching. But Romans 10 says, faith comes through hearing. They have to hear what Jesus has done for them. They have to hear the offer of salvation that Christ has brought. So both are important, but words are ultimately more important than deeds. And again, that's why in, in, in our missions or our vision statement at Hiawatha, we start by saying uh, we, our goal is to, to glorify God by spreading the gospel in word and in deed. And we put them in that order for, for a reason, intentionally. So whether in word or deed, our lives should be ones that share the gospel, whether explicitly through words as well as implicitly through deeds. Again, Jeff Vanderstelt writes, speaking to the church, speaking to Christians, you are always on mission. Every part of your, of your life, every activity and event is a part of Jesus' mission to make disciples. All right, so now to answer that question we got, how, how do we share the gospel in a moment? And then later we'll answer the question, how do we share the gospel in a year or even in a lifetime? So we know that we need to ultimately use words to spread the gospel 
So what should we say and when should we say it? So now it's going to get kind of practical. These are just kind of general principles, so don't feel like these are, you know, I'm reading quotes from the Bible necessarily. But, but what should we say and when should we say it? We know we're supposed to share the gospel, so how can we do it in a moment? We'll start with there. So some great opportunities that you might have to share the gospel will come up. And essentially, you're going to, remember, the gospel means the, the good news of what Jesus has did. So maybe uh, you can share the gospel as an answer to someone's longing or someone's desire. So you talk with a friend or a family member or a neighbor, and you see that they, they just have this longing to have an identity. They want to be known by someone or known for something. They want to have some type of identity. And you can share with them that whatever they're pursuing is not going to give them a true identity. But rather, the truth is that their identity is, is, is a child of God, and they can have their identity as, uh, or they can have their identity in Christ if they trust in Him. Or maybe acceptance, that is their longing or their desire. Their whole life is built around trying to get accepted. They weren't accepted by their parents, they weren't accepted by their friends, they're an outcast at school. Maybe they're trying to get the acceptance of a boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse their whole life, and it's always unfulfilling. It's always leading to pain and hurt, and you can share with them the good news of the gospel is that we do have acceptance, an acceptance that we can never lose, an acceptance that is eternal, and an acceptance that is not just uh, with, with one other human, but with our God, with our Creator. Or another great opportunity to share the gospel is, is when you hear or see a false god, an idol, in someone's life. Again, back to relationships. Maybe someone is, is putting all of their, their worth, all of their value in a relationship with someone. That's, that's always going to let them down. You can share that, hey, that, that desire is not actually a bad thing, but you're putting, uh, you're putting all your hope and your, and your value in a relationship with, uh, with a human who's just going to let you down. But you were created to get your value and get your love and, and get your fulfillment in a relationship with with God instead of with, with just a human. Or maybe with comfort. Someone's idol is comfort. They do everything in their life to try to have a comfortable life, to get away from pain and to move towards comfort. And you can share with them just how we know from experience that that is, that is vanity, that it's not going to last, that we're always, there's always going to be discomfort and pain and suffering. We can't always run from it. But that there is ultimate comfort in salvation, that we can get eternal comfort we can get eternal peace with our God. So those are a few examples. Also, a great opportunity to share the gospel is when, when people are looking at yourself, your friends, your family, your marriage, your community, your church, and they're noticing something different. There's something unique about you. They're, they're looking at you and they're saying, hey, I've, I've never seen a group of people act like this before? Or why is your family so different? Or why do you value these things? Or why do you get your identity in this rather than this? Another great opportunity for, for you to share why you are different. So there, there's the times where you explicitly share the gospel as well as other ways. Other ways we see both in scripture as well as uh, many of us have experiences as well is us sharing our own personal story. And not just about who we are and what we have done, but our story in relation to how Jesus has saved us. So if you're a Christian, another way that we're called to spread the gospel in a moment, specifically if we're talking about in a moment, is to share your own story about how Jesus has saved you. 
Revelation 11, it talks about how the church overcame the enemy, overcame Satan through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the power of their testimony, sharing what Jesus had done, sharing about how Jesus had saved them. 1 Peter 3.15 says, again, speaking to the church, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Some of us here are very unprepared. The Bible is calling us to be prepared to share why you had this hope, why you're so different. To be prepared to share that to anyone who might ask you. Some of us here aren't prepared, and we don't know what we would say if someone actually asked us that question. But this passage tells us not only be prepared, but it's going to happen. So when people ask, why you're different, why you have a hope unlike anything they've ever seen in this world, use this as a chance to share the gospel. Use this as a chance to share your story, your testimony of why Jesus has changed your life and saved you. So another way to share the gospel in a moment is by telling your story, by telling your testimony. Just a few things that kind of pointers, helpful things as, as maybe you haven't yet prepared You've never thought this through, what you would say if someone asked why you have this hope in you. Or maybe you have, and uh, these are just some things that maybe you can add to it. First thing is, is make sure you're making Jesus the hero. It's not just a story about how great you are, or what you've done, or how you've made yourself much better than where you were, or where you came from, but it's a chance for you to share how Jesus is the hero of even your story. Also, kind of a practical, helpful one, have, have both a 30 to 60 second version of that and like a 5 to 7, 5 to 10 minute version, depending on the context. It might be a conversation with many people and you only have a chance to share just 30 seconds worth of why you believe or why you uh, live the way you live, why you have this hope. Or it might be a deep conversation with, with you know, a one-on-one -on -one where you actually get to unpack it and have a much longer version. Also, don't ignore the rough parts of your life. Don't ignore how bad life was prior to Christ. But also, don't just focus on those. Remember, the goal is to make Jesus look awesome. So whether that's bringing you out of great pain and great uh, enslavement to sin and a really horrible life, or whether that's just him saving you from being moralistic or, or you uh, just trying to earn your salvation, whatever it is, make sure that the goal of your story is to make Jesus look awesome. And then finally, remember, we, we live in a postmodern culture. Most of us, when we interact with people, we're going to be talking to people, most of them, who have a postmodern mindset. And there's some, there's some obviously uh, tough things about that, but there's also some good things about that as well. A postmodern culture, in it, people highly value a person's story. They highly value a person's story. So actually, if, if you're talking to, to a neighbor, to a coworker, or a friend, and uh, you tell them, you want to tell them your story. They, you want to tell them about this hope that you have. It's actually taboo in our culture for that person to say, no, I don't want to hear your story. It's actually a big cultural sin for them to say, no, don't tell me what you believe. Don't tell me what you think. Now, if, if, if they have a postmodern worldview, world they'll probably end up saying at the end, well, that's great for you. That's even true for you, but it's just not for me. So they'll probably go there. But the advantage we have living in, Minneapolis and St. Paul in 2015 is that one of our cultural values in this culture is that people's stories matter. 
and people's stories deserve to be heard. So church, let's use that. Let's use that to share the gospel. So sharing the gospel in a moment, it will happen in our lifetimes, but probably won't be the norm. For most of us, we probably won't share the gospel just in a moment. We probably won't meet someone for the first time at Caribou and preach the gospel to them and they'll convert. That probably won't be what happens most of the time. So then, how do we share the gospel in a longer set of time? In, in a year or even a lifetime, as our question asked. First thing we need to share, Michael Devereaux uh, taught me this and has shared this uh, a lot, uh, one of the pastors here at Hiawatha a few years ago. People come to faith, people come to Christ in the context of community over three to five years. So this is not, you know, like a, like a law, but this is, this is very, very often what is happening, especially, you know, in, in America right now. Most people, when they come to faith, they do so in the context of community, and it takes three to five years. So, so not often are people just hearing one sermon or hearing a, a, a preacher on a street corner or having one conversation with a person and immediately converting. That's often not what's happening. So let's unpack this. People coming to Christ, usually in the context of community over three to five years. First of all, in the context of community, what, why is that needed? Or why is that what's so powerful, especially these days with people meeting Jesus and becoming disciples? First of all, that happens. The, the, the non-Christian can't just blow off the Christian sharing their story. If it's just one person, or if it's just like two people or a couple, they can't just say, oh, well, you're, you just must be a, a super generous or a super kind person, and they kind of just put you on a pedestal or put you in a box and say, well, not all Christians are like that, but these two, it's not because they're Christians, they're just special people. Or they can't just blow you off and say, well, they're actually hypocrites. I've actually seen them not be good Christians. But when it happens in the context of community, there's, there's many people that these non-Christians are seeing, and they, they can't just blow off the, the, the non-Christians as being super special, really great people. They're seeing it in many, many people, so there's got to be something there. Or they can't just blow off the one or two that, that end up acting like hypocrites sometimes or, or not being great Christians. Also, they're, they're seeing the same Holy Spirit again and again and again and again over time and in multiple people. They're seeing very, very diverse and different group of people, but they're saying, man, there's something special about all of them. They're so different, though. It can't just be they're all from southwest Minneapolis or they're all uh, twins fans or they're all attorneys or something. But these people are so different, yet there's something very attractive about them. They see it over and over again. Often this is the biblical example, right? We don't often see in the New Testament people receiving Christ, becoming Christians, and then the church or the preacher just saying, all right, see you later, good job, glad you signed up. And then they just go off on their way to be a lone-range Christian. But rather, when, they, when someone becomes saved, they, they become a part of the, the spiritual family. They come, become a part of the church. Also, sharing the gospel in the context of community, it takes off a lot of the responsibility of the one person to do a perfect job. If it's just one person sharing the gospel forever, that person might feel lots and lots of pressure to say everything perfectly, to live the perfect life. And maybe they're just quite different than that other person and can't communicate it the best way or show it the best way. So by doing so in community, it, it lessens the responsibility of that one person, lessens the pressure of that one person to be the perfect example of Jesus. 
And just in general, people are really lonely. In general, most people are really lonely and want to have friends. And so as they're welcomed into a community of faith, they're able to uh, have some of these God-given needs and desires to be loved by people, to be known by people, met within the church. And when welcomed into a community of faith, into a church family, they're now starting to see a new way of living, a new way of belonging, a new way of doing family, of friendship. And that's really attractive to many. So you, they might just see one Christian doing some good Christian things. They might see that, and that might be attractive. But how much more attractive will it be when they see many people doing it and doing it together and with each other, taking care of each other, forgiving each other well? And then finally, so, so how can this look? One thing, just don't, church, don't compartmentalize your life. Don't have your outreach over here and your work over here and your neighbors over here and your family over here and all these different boxes, but rather integrate all of those things. If you, I mean, we see examples of this all the time here at Hiawatha. Jerome and Sarah Peterson, some uh, leaders and deacons here at Hiawatha, they just bought a house. They're having a house party, okay, an open house. And they're not just inviting their Christian friends, their community group, their church family. And they're not, in just, they're not just inviting their coworkers and their new neighbors, but rather they're inviting both of them together. It's both an opportunity to, to fellowship and have fun with other believers as well as to meet uh, their, their neighbors and have their, uh, their coworkers meet other Christians. And so this is happening. Also, invite, or another way this practically can look is you can invite your coworkers, friends, family, neighbors, Invite them to your kids' birthday parties or to your performances or to, to your game, to your holiday parties, your Super Bowl parties, or even your vacations. Let your church community meet and befriend those in your life who don't know yet or follow Jesus. And finally, just don't be a lone ranger. Sometimes, for some of us, we really think we can do it by ourselves and we try to do it all by ourselves. But let's just get rid of that mindset of, of thinking that we can do it and that we can just be this lone ranger Christian that can be uh, the perfect person to, to win people to Christ, but rather uh, need and utilize our faith community. And then what about over the, the, the part of the, yeah, over three to five years? So people usually come to faith in the context of community, and it usually takes three to five years. So again, not always the case, but often this is what we see. Everyone in our culture is trying to sell us something. Everyone is trying to sell us something, and people are very, very skeptical because of that. Everywhere you look, there's uh, an advertisement, someone trying to get you to do something or sell you something or make you change. So people are just very skeptical, maybe more so than ever. And so it's just going to take a lot longer for people to trust in Jesus, to, to see that the gospel is not just another sales pitch, not just something people are trying uh, to get them to buy. And just for us as Christians, knowing that it takes a long time, most of the time for people to come to faith, that can be something that keeps us from getting too discouraged when we've been sharing the gospel with a family member or coworker for years and years and years, and it doesn't seem like anything is happening. Often, we hear this story here at Hiawatha. Someone doesn't believe in the gospel. Someone, they, they would even say they can't believe, maybe, like their, their conscience just doesn't let them, or they just can't believe that there really is a God or that Jesus really did what he said he was going to do. But they come to Hiawatha, a friend invites them, maybe they live in the neighborhood, and they're attracted to what they see. On a Sunday morning in community groups, before and after the service, 
They're attracted to what they see. They're welcomed really well, and they like it, and they start to build deep friendships with people. And we even see many of these people, even though they disbelieve the gospel, even though they think what the preacher up here is preaching on a Sunday morning is wrong, incorrect, untrue, they still love Hiawatha. They use, the, they use these words. They want to serve at our church. So we've had people do that. You know, wash dishes, uh, uh, lots of different ways to serve the church, even though they don't even, they don't even buy in yet. And it takes years, and it takes years, and many of these people have come to know Jesus. And some people, not quite yet, but this is a story we often see here at Hiawatha. Maybe this is your story. Maybe this is a story that people in your life right now. So even though it might take years for someone to follow Jesus, we also need to remember we're actually making disciples too, even before they pray a prayer or we see a conversion. We're teaching them about Jesus. We're teaching them how to read their Bible over these three to five years, if it ends up being that. We're teaching them what Christian community looks like. We're teaching them how followers of Jesus, how they resolve conflict, how they forgive each other and people that have hurt them. And then finally, despite it taking such a long time, most of the time, I want us to, to leave encouraged this morning. So Lifeway Research, they, they, they did a, a survey, a study, and they did it on uh, younger unchurched people. So they defined, they defined younger unchurched people as people from uh, the age of 20 to 29 and people who have not been to a church or a synagogue or a place of worship in the past six months. So people between 20 to 29 who have not don't ever go to church. And they ask them these, these three questions and look at their willingness to listen. You might think, hey, all the non-believers in my life, especially these ones, the unchurched ones, the ones that know nothing about, about Christianity, or especially the younger ones, they're not going to want to hear about what I believe. They're not going to want to hear about Jesus. But look at what uh, the research actually showed. Almost 90% of them are willing to listen to someone tell them what they believe about Christianity. That just blew my mind when I read that. Nine out of ten young people between 20 and 29 who never go to any type of religious service, nine out of ten said they'd be willing for you to tell them about your faith, for you to tell them what you believe about Jesus. So be encouraged by that. There will be, you know, some that don't want to hear it, but for the most part, they want to hear. They're willing to hear. 60%, six out of ten, they're even willing to study the Bible with you. That also blew my mind, thinking that over half of them, over half of these type of people in my life, they, they said, I'd be willing with a friend to actually study the Bible to see about who this Jesus character is and about what he said and what he did. And almost half, 46%, are willing to join a small group to learn more about the Bible and Jesus. So not just a one-time, let's look at the Bible, but actually commit to semi-formally getting together with you and actually learning about who Jesus is. So again, just stats, maybe take it with a grain of salt, but I want us to be encouraged, encouraged by just the willingness of the younger unchurched, people who don't know Jesus yet, the willingness of them to listen. So Hiawatha Church, or if you're from a different church, let's utilize this for the sake of those who don't know Jesus and who's right now, whose futures are prisoners behind the gates of hell. It's, yeah, let's utilize that. All right, a few final thoughts. First one is, remember, don't forget, remember your identity as a Christian. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher in Great Britain, decades ago said, 
Every Christian is either a missionary or they're an imposter. If you call yourself a Christian, if you, if you are a Christian, if you're a true Christian, you are a missionary. It's just, it's just plain and simple. Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to make disciples. If you're a Christian, you are a missionary. Remember your identity as that. Notice that this sermon has not been about, guys, invite your friends to church. Invite them to a Sunday morning gathering so the professionals up on stage can convert people. That's, I mean, for sure, invite your friends to church. We want them to come. But that's not the goal. This whole sermon's not about only professional evangelists and pastors and preachers. They're the ones that make disciples. That's not what this is about. That's not what Jesus says. He says, all my disciples are going to make disciples. And because the gospel isn't just for professional Christians or people who are really great with their words, but because it's for everyone, it shows that it's not about us. The gospel is not about someone who's good at public speaking or someone who has a command of a room or someone who has a lot of influence. The gospel is for everyone, even people who stumble over their words or who don't know the Bible really that well or who get really embarrassed or terrified to share their faith. Secondly, intentional mission. So rather than just adding this, some of you might be hearing this and thinking, that's great, maybe the Bible says it, maybe Jesus is telling me to do this, but I don't have any more time in my life. Have you seen my schedule? I have no more room to put outreach, to put evangelism, to put missional living on my calendar. And that's not what Christ calls us to do. Instead, he calls us to be intentional with everything we're doing in our life, wherever he has placed us. Ephesians 5 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. This is what it means to live as, as a wise Christian. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Make the most of every opportunity because the, days are e- because the days are evil. The Gospel Primer writes about this, this idea of intentional mission, this being intentional with our life rather than adding on more stuff. I want to suggest that the secret to increasingly living our lives on mission is to move from seeing a gospel-centered mission as something additional, something we add on to our already busy life that needs to be tacked on to life. Move from that to seeing all the normal stuff and rhythms of life as full of opportunity for the gospel. We need only to fill them with greater gospel intentionality. We must move from an additional mindset to an intentional mindset in the normal rhythms of life and circles of influence that God has given us. So if you're already going to a concert or a festival or some type of event, invite others to go with you. If you're already going to your kids' baseball practices and games and recitals, then build relationships with those people there that you're going to see for the next two months. You're already at work or you're already at class 40 plus hours a week. So be intentional there. See who God has sovereignly placed in your circle of influence, in your classroom, at your job, and see that as your mission field. You, you already live in a dorm, in an apartment, in a neighborhood, in a condo. So meet those neighbors. God's placed you there for a reason. Be intentional with this. You're already going to watch a Super Bowl, the Grammys, or the season finale of Downton Abbey. So why not invite others to watch it with you? Be intentional. Christians throughout history have believed that the gospel is the greatest thing that they can give to this world. That there is nothing greater, not money, not gold, not a cure from cancer, not a dream house, not a perfect spouse. We believe that the greatest gift that we can give people is the gospel. If you're not a Christian here today, know that Jesus is not just a salesman. Christians are not just salesmen trying to pitch you something. 
But Jesus loves you so much that he made his church's mission to tell you about this salvation that he offers. He said, church, your main mission is going to be to tell people who don't know it yet, I love them so much, so much that I died, so much that I paid their penalty so that they no longer have to be prisoners enslaved behind a gate in hell, in Hades, in death. So today, respond to Jesus' offer. Respond to his offer of forgiveness. He wants you to know that he loves you dearly and he offers you forgiveness and life and life eternal. Accept this gift today. See Jesus' love for you, for you specifically. Put your name in there. See Jesus' love for you today in the mission that he gave his church. And finally, my last encouragement for you, the church, one that has been a great encouragement for me throughout my life, is you can't screw it up. You can't screw it up. God's the one that saves, not you. So don't live in fear because your life's not perfect, because you might stumble over your words, because you're terrified of talking to new people, because you might lose a friend. Don't live in fear because you can't screw it up. You can't screw it up. But instead, live in confidence knowing that God is the one who saves and live grateful that he chooses to use you, to give you great joy in spreading his gospel. So don't feel like you have to be the perfect Christian, to have the perfect life, to have the greatest answers, the greatest arguments, know the most Bible before you can start sharing the gospel. Because what, if, if, you, if you believe that, what that's saying is that only professional Christians or only really smart people are those who can receive salvation. But if it's just normal people, just normal everyday people, like these disciples who were uneducated and fearful, he used them, he can use everyone here in this room today. So be encouraged in that. You can't screw it up. God's the one who saves. We're going to end with the, doc, the, the doxology from Jude that reinforces this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you, first of all, that your mission was to come and save the lost. All of, all of us were a part of that. We were the lost. We were distant from you. We were spiritually dead. We were destined for hell. We were prisoners behind the gates of Hades with no hope of ever getting out. But your mission was to come to storm those gates of hell and to set the captives free, to give them eternal life. So thank you, first of all, for that. And secondly, for let it, letting us, your church, Christians, being a part of your mission, continuing to go forward, to making disciples by preaching the gospel in the context of community, faith community, gospel-centered community. Help us to be more of that, to love that mission even more, to be less fearful, to be more passionate, and to just rest, knowing that you are the one that saves. Pray this all in your saving, powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.